0: So we're starting this series this morning called Hope Came Down, and it's our Advent series, this uh, time of the year where we are anticipating Christmas and going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But before we do that, we are going to take some time to ponder this deep mystery of who Jesus is in his glory and perfection, which I believe will set us up well to be standing in awe that this glorious person became human. And I think this is especially important actually during this season. Sociologists have called our culture the age of anxiety. With all of the information that we're getting on a daily basis, we can often become overwhelmed by the brokenness and the problems in the world. And I think this can actually be especially true during the holiday season because life slows down a little bit and we begin to think about our lives and we can quickly begin to be overwhelmed with Our problems. And I actually read this article this week in in preparation for this sermon and came across sort of a really insightful reason from this psychologist named Jill Niemark. This was actually published in Psychology Today in an article called The Culture of Celebrity, where she talks about one of the reasons that we an age of anxiety, and even that this could be a season of anxiety. So she writes this, Celebrity in America has always given us an outlet for our imagination, just as the gods and demigods of ancient Greece and Rome once did. Celebrities are our myth-bearers, carriers of the divine forces of good, evil, lust, and redemption. Heroes, we all might agree, carry intrinsic value. The essence of the heroic and the noble. Durable gods serve to lift our vision above the mundane. In our global and atomized world of bits and bytes, where information is instantly available and massive in its quantities and as perishable as an electronic image, celebrities help personalize that information. They put a human face on it. However, they are diminished in the process. The trouble is, so are we. If our gods are no longer permanent, if our heroes are murderers, if our political leaders are exposed as compulsive adulterers or tax evaders, then we can no longer fill ourselves up on them in quite the same way. Instead, we drown in information and use it to allay the anxiety of a godless and ever-shifting culture. Our endless lust for stories derives in part from the pure pleasure of it, but also to distract us from our deeper anxieties. So in our culture of information, what she's saying is that we tend to make heroes out of celebrities, but it becomes very evident very quickly to us that celebrities are as broken and imperfect as we are. And so, we're left empty. We're left longing, she says, for a durable God who can lift our vision above the mundane. Because we're so used to our gods letting us down. And I think particularly in this season, we are looking for somebody to be a hero, to take away the anxiety that we have. And what I'm going to talk about with you this morning is who that durable God is. Who the God is who can take away your anxiety, who can lift your vision above the mundane. Paul met Jesus face to face. And this is who he wrote that Jesus is. In Colossians chapter 1, Verses 15 through 20. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. These verses will be on the screens. He said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. The Apostle Paul says, Jesus alone can lift your vision above this broken world. He is the durable God that we are longing for. And it's actually going to take us three weeks to unpack this short passage. It's so dense. It's so rich. There is so much here. And so we're looking at three ways this morning that Jesus transcends our broken world and thereby takes away... Our anxiety. Number one, all things belong to Jesus. Number two, all things were created by Jesus. And, And number three, all things were created for Jesus. So first of all, all things belong to Jesus. The passage starts off with verse 15 saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So what you need to know about this passage is it's full of Old Testament imagery. This image of people created in the image of God and the firstborn. So the Bible actually opens up with Genesis chapter 1 with God's crowning achievement in creation being men and women created in the image of God. People were created in his likeness to reflect God the way that a mirror reflects our image. But it takes a very short time in the biblical story about a page for humanity to screw that up. And so in Genesis chapter 3, people choose to rebel against God and their ability to reflect his image is shattered. So people still reflect God's image, but in a broken and incomplete way. And from that time, God promises men and women that he will send an invincible hero to rescue them. And that that hero will be a son, a firstborn son. And what we see throughout the entire Old Testament is that people are jockeying for position to be this firstborn son. And Israel, this entire nation, is looking for people in the form of prophets, priests, and kings who will be this invincible hero who can rescue them from their brokenness and their inability to perfectly reflect God's image. And honestly, if we read through the Old Testament... Over and over again, we get our hopes up, and over and over again, our hopes are crushed because there is no one who can both reflect God's image and be this firstborn perfect son. That is, until the Apostle Paul says, Jesus Jesus remarkably, perfectly reflected the image of God. Every other person who has ever been born on planet Earth has been a broken person, deeply flawed, sinful, unable to keep the commandments of God, unable to love God and love their neighbors as themselves. Except for Jesus. Everyone who walked with him, knew him well, all of his best friends said, this man was different. We never once witnessed him breaking any of God's law. And so those around him began to think, could this be the one that we've been longing for. And Paul adds to this beautiful picture of Jesus being in the image of God, another image of him being the firstborn son of God. People in the Old Testament had longed for a firstborn son who would be the heir of God. God and who God would give everything to. And again, no firstborn son was found who could carry the weight of the universe on their shoulders until Paul says, there's Jesus. And what it means for him to be the firstborn son is that he is the heir to the throne of God. That everything in the universe belongs to him. In his life and in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus showed that he was worthy of it all. Now this is good news for us, But I think initially it could sound like bad news. Here's why Firstborns are known to be self righteous. Any of you have older brothers or sisters? And can you imagine if your older brother or sister was perfect? Bummer news. (laughs) Right? It's hard enough when they're just a high achiever, imagine if they're perfect. How could this possibly be good news that Jesus is perfect and that he's the firstborn son? I think that Jesus does well to tell us the story of the two sons. You remember we often call this the story of the prodigal son and explain sort of This reality that I'm talking about that's been going on for thousands of years, apparently. There's this son, right? And he goes and squanders the inheritance and he goes and sleeps with prostitutes and he ends up in a pig sty eating pig food. And then he decides to go home and his father runs out to greet him, throws him this party, kills the fattened calf. Everybody's rejoicing. And what's his older brother doing? Standing on the outside of the party, throwing his own pity party and saying, Are you kidding me? I've worked so hard. I've been the perfect son. I've done what I'm supposed to do. And there's sort of a dot, dot, dot at the end of that story. And it leaves us with this longing for an older brother who's not like that, who's not gonna hold it over our heads. And what we see unfold in the biblical story is that Jesus is the older brother who goes into the party to celebrate with us sinners. He loves sinners. He loves us. And even though he is the rightful heir to the inheritance, his heart is actually to share the inheritance with us. Even though he has earned it, and he has claim on it, and we have earned nothing and deserve nothing, Jesus wants to share the inheritance with us. There's this remarkable passage in Romans chapter 8 that says this about those who are in Christ. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So get this. I said Jesus, perfectly in the image of God, the firstborn son of God, the heir, wants to share his inheritance with you. All of it. And he owns the universe. He wants to give it all to you. That's how amazingly gracious he is. He is like no other older brother, not holding his righteousness over our head, but giving us his righteousness as a gift. But the story doesn't stop there. There's another reason for Jesus being the rightful heir. Of the universe. And that's actually that all things were created by Jesus. So everything belongs to him by right, but he's also the creator of everything. 16, verse A says, says this For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Okay, so here's the important word here, the word for, okay? The word for connects us to the previous verse. So the previous verse has said that Jesus was perfectly in the image of God and that he is the firstborn son. But we might begin to think that Jesus somehow, by his perfect life, earned the inheritance which is only sort of half true. The truth is, it's more accurate to say that when Jesus came to the earth, he claimed his inheritance. And that's because Jesus is the creator of the universe. And actually, even beyond our universe, he is the creator of everything both visible and invisible. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. So when we read in Genesis 1 of God creating everything, we know that he created everything through his word. He said, let there be light, and there was light, and so on and so forth. And we know in Scripture that the word is a person, and his name is Jesus. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god so jesus created everyone and everything and part of his mission in coming to earth was to claim what is rightfully his which is everything it is incredibly remarkable Imagine this scenario. Okay? One of Monet's most famous paintings is called Water Lilies. I'm sure you guys have seen it. Even if you don't know the name of the painting, you've seen this painting, Water Lilies. Okay? And imagine that during Monet's lifetime, this painting, Water Lilies, was stolen from him. People love to steal art. Do you guys love movies where people steal art? Those are always kind of fun to watch, aren't they? Somebody steals this painting from Monet. And it's his masterpiece. And he's longing to have it back. And all of a sudden, this painting goes up on the market. And Monet has been mad that this painting has been stolen from him. And he sees that this painting goes up on the market. And so he shows up at the auction and people are trying to bid on the painting. And he's like, it's my painting. And you would say that he has every right to take back what is his. He has every right to claim what is his. Why? Because he's the creator. Here's what Colossians 1 is saying. Jesus has every right to claim creation as his own Because he is its source. Everything derives from him. He is the original. Everything else is derivative, which has incredibly practical implications for our lives. It will cause you to worship in a way maybe you've never worshiped before as you think about these things. So I don't know about you, but... Sometimes I'll go out on a walk and I'll just pull a leaf off of a tree and I'll just look at that leaf and you start to see like the veins in the leaf and you just begin to think about how intricate the design even of one small piece of creation is. And what it causes you to do when you have this understanding is to say, not this, the creator of this. Causes you to look at the Monet and say, not just Water Lilies is a beautiful painting, but Monet is a genius artist. And it causes you to say, wow, if he put this much detail into his creation and he placed people in the center of his creation, how much must he love me? Amazing. But, guys, it's not just that all things belong to Jesus and that Jesus created everything, as remarkable as those things are. It's actually that all things were created for Jesus. Okay, the end of the passage that we're looking at today. Verse 16, sort of the second half, says this. All things were created through him and for him. People are scrambling to figure out why we exist. Something I enjoy doing is watching debates on YouTube between famous Creationists and famous evolutionary biologists. I remember watching this debate one time between a famous creationist and Richard Richard Dawkins, the famous biologist. And this creationist asked Dawkins how the universe came to be, and I'll never forget Dawkins' response. He says, well, yeah, that's a big problem. We don't really know. Which... At first, I'm just like, wow, that's a, it's really cool, actually, that he just admitted not knowing the answer to such a big question. But I think it also made me deeply sad. Because if we don't know the source of the universe, then it is impossible for us to know its purpose. Because in order to know the purpose of the universe... The designer has to tell us what it is. So, to live with this hole in your worldview of the source of creation is at the end of the day, if you're intellectually honest, to live your life without a purpose. But as Christians, we don't have to live without a purpose. God has actually revealed to us through his word what the purpose of everything is. And we can say it in two words. It's for Jesus. It's for his glory. It's for his honor. We're talking about galaxies, stars, planets, world leaders, individual people, trees, leaves, and atoms. Everything that exists, exists for the glory of Jesus. It is so that we say, not just, wow, the world is an amazing place, but that we would say, Jesus is an amazing person. He is incredible. The creation, like the word of God, communicates to us the glory of God. It shows us the wonder of who he is. It shows us how spectacular of a person he is. It shows us the wonder of his ways. People in the psalm ponder the works of God. Do you know what I think begins to happen as we begin to think about this? Maybe one conclusion you're even making in your mind right now is, okay, if everything is created for the glory of Jesus and I am part of everything, then that means I'm created for the glory of Jesus and my life has a remarkable purpose, which is true. Are you feeling purposeless this morning? Are you feeling more broken than beautiful? Are you feeling more weary than wonderful? Are you feeling more anxious than amazing? Are you feeling like, man, okay, I can see God's glory in creation, but it's really hard for me to see God's glory in the mirror? I'm putting on the show for everybody else, but I'm really just feeling like a piece of junk. Here's the good news for you you can sin and sin and sin, but you cannot wash away God's image from your life. You cannot wash His purpose away from your life. God is able to see beauty in your brokenness. He sees you this morning. Not the you that's been broken by the fall, but the you who he created for his glory. Here's the way that God sees you. It's the way that I see my kids' artwork. Okay, my kids, just bottom line, they're terrible artists. Okay? <laughs> And they are constantly drawing me pictures. And there's progressions in my kids' artwork. So I have kids all the way from age three all the way up to age nine. And so sometimes I get pictures with my arms coming out of my head. Or sometimes I have a green face. Or sometimes my name is spelled wrong. Or... I'm purple and look like a baby, or I'm short and fat, or whatever it is, my kids are drawing pictures of me. They're drawing pictures for me. And they're junk. You wouldn't want them. But here's the thing. I love them. I love them so much. I love when they bring me pictures Often when I come home, they've been sitting down at the table and they've folded these pictures into envelopes and they've got my name written on the front and they bring them to me and I open them up and every time I'm like, wow, this is so awesome. And I can so genuinely say that because I know that it's for me. Here's what I think God wants from you this morning. For you, by his grace to reclaim the purpose of your life. And the way that you do that is not by cleaning up your life. It is by taking your awful picture and saying, Here it is, God. This is it. This is all I have to offer. All my brokenness, all my sin, all my messed upness, all my sadness. In other words, I got nothing. And you bring it to God. And here's the amazing thing. Because of what Jesus has done, he will say, wow, I love it. I love it. Welcome to the family. Let's meditate on this verse to close. Real quick, just think about this. In light of all that we've said, Psalm 139, the psalmist is reflecting on this reality. He says, for you created My inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. God made you. And because he made you, you are beautifully broken. And he wants your life. And as you give your life to him, you will find your purpose and you will know his love. And that's what Christmas is all about. That's why Jesus came. To die for you so that you could have life. Let's pray. Jesus, what a remarkable passage. It is so fun to just take a couple verses at a time in your scripture. And to dive into them. And to see the purpose that you have for our lives. God, I just pray for that person who's sitting in the crowd this morning and they just feel like junk. Would you allow them to see that this Christianity thing isn't what they've thought it was their whole life? That it's not about cleaning up our lives or trying to turn ourselves into this perfect piece of art, a masterpiece to show to you, but it's actually a broken and contrite spirit that you love. It's actually repentance. It's actually being able to come and say, not just I have messed up, but I am messed up. In the deepest core of my being, I know that I'm broken. And God, would you just say to each person who needs to hear it, I love you. You're mine. Reclaim us for your purpose, God. In Jesus' name, amen.